Welcome to the SF Squeecast, in which a group of science fiction and fantasy professionals squee about things SF-nal in a never-ending panel discussion of vague positivity. I'm your moderator, Lynn Thomas. I'm joined today by Squeecast regulars Elizabeth Baer. Hello. Paul Cornell. Good evening. Shannon McGuire. Howdy. Catherine Valenti. Hi. I think Bear's dog, Ace. And our, and our very special guest, Sophia Samatar. Hello. Sophia's novel, A Stranger in a Laundria, is available from small beer press and fine booksellers everywhere. We're going to mix things up a bit this year, as many of our listeners know, and we have shifted our focus. So rather than doing the book report style of bringing an individual item to the cast to talk about, um, we're doing a series of basically your invisible cups of tea segments, where we're going to talk about a couple of topics uh, in as positive a manner as we can manage. Uh, A note for our listeners, you may have noticed that there wasn't a podcast last month. We apologize. We did indeed record a podcast at Minicon Live. However, we had some problems with the recording session, uh, and then our technical producer decided to move house. And so on top of those two things, we're a little bit behind. Uh, He will have a chance, hopefully, in the next couple of weeks to edit everything and get it put together. So the Minicon episode at the moment is missing in action, but we promise it's coming soon. Uh, And this one may actually come out before the Minicon episode, in which case we deeply apologize, but we hope you stick around for it because it was raucous to say the least. Uh, So there's your update on what happened to May's episode. It's still sitting on the computer we recorded it on. We're going to get there, I promise. Uh, So there you have it. It's still in the Death Star. It's still in the Death Star. (laughs) Stay on target. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to start today by talking about, um, uh, this is a topic that Sophia actually uh, suggested. We're going to talk about books that, um, when we read them for the first time, whenever that happened to be, gave us the, where was this when I was 14? Where was this when I was 16? Where has this been all my life? That feeling. Um, Because I think that's one of the things that that draws us into being squeeful about stuff, is, is having that experience. Uh, so that's where we're going to begin. Um, and Sophia, why don't you kick us off by talking about uh, a book that did that for you? Well, one that did that for me really recently, there have been several. I've had this experience several times. Um, and honestly, I find it a little bit frustrating because often these books have been around forever. They were around when I was a kid and I just didn't know about them. Um, but the most recent one is um, Samuel R. Delaney's Tales of Neverion, of the whole um, Never Yona saga. Um, I, I've never read these books. I never read it until uh, about two weeks ago. Um, and I, the reason I picked it up was because um, I had seen a couple of people who had read A Stranger in a Laundria and said, this reminds me of Tales of Neverion. And I thought, I, I had read um, a couple of Delaney's SF, um, more science fictional books. I had read um, Nova and Stars in My Pocket Like Grains of Sand, but I had never read the fantasy. And I picked this thing up and it blew my mind. It's the most amazing thing ever. And it's like almost as old as I am, I think. Okay. Sophia, I, I have a question for you. Yes. Um, the... Uh, it's been so long since I read those. Um, is that the one with awesome gay Conan in it? It is the one. It is the okay. one with awesome, strapping, black gay Conan that I am in love with. And now we have our episode title. Awesome gay Conan. Yes. 
Yes. And it's the one where, you know, it, it deals a lot with slavery and um, with this, I mean, what's part of what's so complex about that character who is a former slave is that uh, he's, he's leading a slave revolt and he's liberating the slaves, but at the same time on an erotic level, the master slave thing is very powerful to him. So he and his lover still like take turns wearing the slave collar for their erotic play because it stimulates them. And at the same time, he's so it's, it does a really complex thing with like, you know, what needs to be corrected in the world and what is somehow um, still very powerful to people in their private fantasies and possibly, you know, okay at that level. You know, I think the book is, it's just doing something really challenging and complex with that, which I loved. Excellent. Thank you, Sophia. Sorry, I had to just wrestle the cat off of the power strip because I didn't want her cutting us <laughs> off in the middle of it. Oh, it's, it's going to be one of those podcasts. It's going to be one of those podcasts. Yeah, I have Marie Cat down here being like, meow, 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 playing on the like with her paw on the power button on the power strip because apparently <laughs> I am not paying enough attention to her. Well, after, after the earlier demonstration, Ace has been exiled to his box. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, I, I was just wondering, um, we're talking tonight about um, books you one wishes one encountered when one was, um, you know, uh, young. Do you think your reaction would have been different when you were young? Do you, or do you think, um, uh, to any of, of, of these books, do you think that, um, you know, do you think it would have blown our minds when we were that age? That's a really good question. I think when I read um, Tales of Niberian, what I thought was not that I would have wanted it when I was, you know, 12, but that when I was, say, 28, and I was writing, you know, the first draft of A Stranger in Alondria, I, I, it would have been incredible. It would have been incredible to me to have, um, to have read that book. And, you know, I was, I, didn't have, um, it wasn't easy for me to get books at the time that I was writing because I was in South Sudan and it just, it, they weren't very accessible. Um, but I also just hadn't, I, I just didn't know about it. Um, but people have compared it, it to your work. So I don't know, would it have been too much of an influence? Would it have been, uh, how can one say? I, I don't know. That's a good question too. I, I myself, I don't know what too much of an influence is. I no, I'm not it. sure either. No. <laughs> so, so I want. I'm, oh, go ahead, Sophia. You first. No, I'm just saying that I. I think you know. Um, what's too much influence? Influence me, world. Influence me, literature. I, <laughs> what What I was going to say is that you may actually um, have been influenced by it without knowing it. Uh, I, I recently had the the absolutely joyous experience of uh, handing my boyfriend Scott Lynch Roger Zelazny's Amber novels, which he had never read, even though you would not believe that to to read Scott's work. Um, and he was just completely blown away by reading them because he could see the influences that he had internalized secondhand from people like Stephen Bruce 
and of course there's you know Zelazny's influenced by Liber and it's so this is part of that long conversation thing but I I think that that finding that influence in yourself when you didn't know it was there is one of the coolest things for me anyway I completely agree and I wish I understood how it worked more (laughs) (laughs) but you probably caught it from somebody who caught it from Delaney so basically it's it's a social disease it's a social disease (laughs) (laughs) Literary influence is a social disease. I like it. It makes a certain amount of sense. So, um, Sean, and I'm going to put you on the spot. Are there any books that, uh, in your reading experience at the time that you read them, you were like, I wish that, I wish this had been around when I was before this. I wish I had found this before this. I don't normally wish I had read things as a kid, both because I read so much as a kid that I think I would have died of starvation Mm -hmm. if I had had anything more to read. Um, And because I'm really glad that I read a lot of incredibly problematic shit when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, Not because I'm glad it's problematic, but because I look at it now and I'm like, I could not love this Mm. if I read it now, understanding it the way I do. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's like the first time I rewatched Revenge of the Nerds as an adult and realized that it's an incredibly rapey movie. It's it's actually really upsetting. But I got to have years of loving it and not comprehending how incredibly misogynistic and uncool it was. And that was nice. Um, my experiences tend more toward Why Didn't You Tell Me? Mm-hmm. Um, I Transmetropolitan, which was a Warren Ellis comic. All of my friends knew about it and apparently decided that it just wasn't my thing, so they didn't need to tell me it existed. Like, when I called them on it, they literally said, I just didn't think you'd like that. So I didn't find out about it till it was almost over um, and, and took my vicious revenge by basically writing a transmetropolitan pastiche zombie trilogy and making them all read it. Like, see how much not my thing it was? Screw you guys. Um... <laughs> And, and then recently I was doing a TV tropes crawl uh, and found the page for this series of novels that sounded interesting and then got my wires crossed and thought that it was a different series of novels. And so went on Twitter and asked if anybody knew anything about these laundry books that were apparently <laughs> quite good. Um, and Charles Straw sent them to me because he is a sweetheart. And then I yelled at all my friends for like a month, all of them. Because I'd go, have you heard of The Laundry? It's math and magic and governmental politics, and it's amazing. And they're like, oh, yeah, I've been reading those for years. <laughs> and, um, and then I became somewhat violent and uncool. Um, so, yeah, not so much with kids, just a lot of, of <laughs> well, adult Well, Sean, and if you, if you don't know about it now, I'm telling you about Rat Queens. I love Rat Queens so much! Oh, my God! I got to talk to the creators, and, like, we had a, a whole thing, and we wound up with a small radio play happening in front of the booth accidentally when someone came up and started quoting Betty at me, and I, I turned around and started quoting Dee at her, and then we just, we, uh, we osmosed, and then I got bumped off of Dee by a lady who was like, fuck you, Dee is me, and then I had to be Hannah for a while, but it turns out I'm a really good Hannah because I talk really quickly. It was awesome! It's the best book ever! I love you. <laughs> Okay. Uh, Kat, we haven't heard from you yet. Um, why don't you tell us a little yeah. bit about books that have given you that sensation that we also love and w- and wish for in our reading? Well, th- I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is Little Big, which I didn't read till I was 27 or 28. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, it's my favorite novel. And it amazed me that I could find my favorite novel at 28. Um, but honestly, the feeling I have more is wishing I'd read things as I w- when I was a kid. 
because I would have loved them then and I don't now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually like shorthand this among my social circle as the Neuromancer effect because I recognize that Neuromancer is a great novel, absolutely. But I read it three years ago for the first time. And it's Mm -hmm. really hard to read that book as it must have been when it first came out, as revolutionary as it must have been because I've seen all of the ripoffs of it. I've seen all of the books that were influenced by it. I've seen the Matrix trilogy. I've seen the uh, ripple effect, the you know, drop of ink in the water as Neuromancer infiltrated so much of science fiction. And so to a fresh reader, it just looks like things I've seen a million times, even though intellectually I know that's not the case and that this, this was a book that came out of nowhere and was extraordinary at the time. And A Wrinkle in Time is another one uh, like that where I look at that and I go, God, I would have been obsessed with this when I was a kid and I I would have been a slightly different person for loving this book and I just can't have the same feeling about it now because my feminist brain looks at it and starts to get squirmy in her seat and and my my adult analytical self gets in the way. And so that's kind of the feeling I have more often that I, I missed a window where something could have become a part of my heart and I can't access it the same way anymore mm-hmm. so which is less gleeful but more it's true to my experience uh, I yeah. read a lot as a child as well mm-hmm. uh, but the things that I missed um, oftentimes I just wish that I could go back and insert it so mm-hmm. that I could have that feeling Sean is talking about of, uh, of, of loving something without considering it too much mm-hmm. yeah well, the, new, the neuromancer effect is surely the Sorry, the Neuromancer effect is, is surely the the greatest success one can have in genre in some ways, in that your book is yeah. entirely consumed into fuel for the rest of the mm. genre. So yeah. much so that it ceases to have any... It's, it's kind of self-defeating because it ceases to have its own greatness, but... Yeah. Well, I, this I, has I, happened I, I, to War for the Oaks as well. Right. Yeah. It's why I've never read Tolkien. By the time I tried to read Tolkien, I had read so much Dragonlance and Forgotten Realms and Terry Brooks that... He seemed like a cheap knockoff. I, th- I think. I'm sorry, Paul. I think we just interrupted you. Oh no, not at all. I was done. I was done. Oh, okay. So, so Paul, are there works that you wish you had read before that you encountered uh, later? This is this is such a, a difficult question for me. I was racking my brains. In, in many ways, this is sort of a return to our previous format. In that, um, yeah, uh, I, I think any of them I might mention now, I would have mentioned in previous editions. Mm-hmm. Um, I I remember reading Weave World and um, relatively late and thinking, my goodness, isn't Clive Barker a tremendous writer of prose? That um, his plotting, well, okay, but but his prose, um, he sometimes hits heights which are kind of like ecstatic experiences, and uh, there's a lot of that in Weave World. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but would I have got that if I'd read him when I was a kid? I don't know. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I think for me, um, one of the interesting things is that there are a couple of novels that I, I have read as, as an adult. So, I, everyone is well familiar with the fact that I'm only about 10 years into genre. I didn't grow up reading genre hardly at all, although A Wrinkle in Time is is still one of my favorite books ever. But there are a couple of novels that I have read as an adult that I wish I had encountered when I was younger because I'm a sucker for historical novels. And um, when... Um, I come across historical novels that include SF elements, you know, that very much feeds right into my wheelhouse in a happy place. So I wish I had discovered them or encountered them earlier so that I would have gotten into genre as a whole earlier, because those are sort of, for the kind of reader that I was growing up, those would have been gateway novels for me. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so the the two that come to mind um, that that were very much the I when I finished them I got on the internet and yelled at all my friends for not having told me more loudly and shoved the books at me faster. Um, the two that come to mind are uh, The Privilege of the Sword by Ellen Kushner uh, and Tooth and Claw by Joe Walton. Now people had been telling me about Tooth and Claw for quite some time and I just didn't get around to it and didn't get around to it and so that was very much a turning to the internet and saying yes you were right internet <laughs> I believe you <laughs> dragons and trollop is a good combination excellent thank you um, and with uh, Privilege of the Sword it was very much a I wish I had read this when I was 14 um, I wish I had had I wish someone had pushed Tamara Pierce into my hands when I was 12, 13, 14 because I read A Wrinkle in Time and I loved it but I wanted more um, more active protagonists and you know I, I had a great librarian who just wasn't into SF so I didn't get handed those things and, and in retrospect that makes me sad because I, I missed out on a, a lot of stuff that probably would have been formative in very similar ways. I mean, I don't think I would have been a completely different person for having read genre earlier, but I think um, that it would have... I think I would have had a heck of a lot of fun. Um, more fun than I did, you know. Uh, so there's, you know, so there's that. Way about, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, I, um, I felt that way about Ellen Kushner's um, Swords Point. Mm -hmm. um, when I read it just a couple of years ago, and I just thought... Where was this book? And to me, it was um, the fact that it was a fantasy, and yet it didn't have a lot of typical fantasy things about it. So it didn't. It it wasn't you know about magic, and it wasn't really about a quest. It was just kind of you know these people in a town, and a lot of um, um, you know people going to salons at people's houses, and nobles, and whoever, and, and it it was just so exciting to me that it was not a historical, I mean, that it was, that it was um, in a fantasy world and yet didn't need to do a lot of typical fantasy things. And that's what I wish that I had seen younger because I wish that I had known earlier that that was possible. Okay. So it sounds like we've drawn to a close, uh, a close on this one. Um, we're going to well, actually, Lynn, I was, I, oh, okay. I had something I wanted to say in, in response. You brought well, up right ahead. <laughs> you brought up Tamora Pierce, um, and that that's a that's an interesting thing for me because I somehow managed to make it into my thirties before even knowing she existed. Um, I don't know if it was because I was mostly reading like my mom's and grandparents' books mm -hmm. or, but I, I had no idea that there was that, um, I, I still haven't read the Alana books. One of these days I'm going to have to, um, but I have, I have read her Becca Cooper stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I, I literally more or less met the woman on live journal before I had any <laughs> idea who she was, which is probably a good thing because it kept me from being intimidated. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> she's also, she happens to be an amazing human being. She is. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, so I, I, and I, I, I never had that experience of, boy, I wish I'd read these earlier, but now I wonder what it would have been like to, to read them when I was, um, you know, when did those start? Those started coming out in 83, 84. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when I was in my adolescent period, basically, mm -hmm. um, that, and I think I'm, I, I, I'm having the experience that Kat was talking about 
where I think I might have been a slightly different person if I had read those books at, a, mm-hmm. <laughs> at the appropriate age, at a formative age. Well, I think it's, it's interesting that we're having this conversation um, given that none of us is a, is a teenager on the modern internet mm-hmm. because we're one of the last generations. Um, really, I think that, that my generation and Kat's generation, I'm, I'm not sure where everyone else falls in terms of when you were in high school, we're the last ones that only found books through direct physical friends and library and recommendations. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I only knew about... Tamora Pierce, who was hugely important to me because one of the girls who was a library aide in my high school library was obsessed with those books to the degree that I was obsessed with Stephen King. And she actually stopped letting me check out Stephen King novels unless I would also take a Tamora Pierce. Uh, That was how she dealt with my deficiencies in reading. And now you have book recommendation blogs, you have the book, the book side of Tumblr. You know, it's a lot harder, I think, to miss the existence of things. It's not impossible. You can still do it. But I, I hope that in 20 years, when the equivalent of the SF Squeecast has started up with people that are, are teenagers on Tumblr today, and they start talking about book discovery in high school, uh, that they have fewer, oh, I missed this. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I really think they've got better tools than we did. Yeah, well, I, mean, I, I, I miss, really agree. <laughs> <laughs> you miss stuff now by um, by there being too much stuff. Yeah. Sheer volume. Yeah, yeah. But, I'm, I'm just getting around to to a whole bunch of Karen Joy Fowler that I've been meaning to read for years. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, I mean, but, you're right. It was a huge. It was hugely important to us. Not only what our librarians recommended, but what was on our parents' bookshelves and mm-hmm. sort of this the ambient luck of what books were physically near your person growing up. And so it is quite easy to meet things, we, uh, to miss things. We were talking about the long conversation and, and that's great. But as a kid, it was so easy not to even recognize that something like that was going on because you put your hands out in the dark and whatever somebody held out to you was what you were reading. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that that effect still kind of happens, as what Vera was saying, is that there's, there is so much now. And librarians, you know, YA librarians, uh, children's librarians are still quite important in the recommendation process. But, I mean, you can, any, any teenager off the street, when I go to schools, I can say the name Neil Gaiman, and many don't know what I'm talking about. Many do, but there's a lot that have never heard the name. You can still miss things because the volume of books that are thrown at these kids is just so intense. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so do we have any other comments on missing things or anything like that? Um, I think what I'd like to do is is to take a slight break from our conversation, um, shift gears, and mention things that are making us happy in SFF, because I forgot to do that at the top of the episode. Oh, I was wondering, because you said this is going to be our new form. I thought, oh, she's changed her <laughs> yep, yep, No, that's just called, I put the notes in the wrong order. <laughs> Lynn is bad at alphabetizing. Um, and you're a librarian. And I'm a librarian. This is this is why I'm I'm a fancy curator administrator now. I have other people to do that in my department because they're better at it at this point. Um, so um, I'm going to do a round robin of, of what's making us happy in SFF, and then I want to see. I want I I would like us to sort of turn to talking about the long conversation in terms of um, books that talk to one another. The 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 books that. Um, are so embedded in genre that they 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 
create this sort of osmosis and they create this sort of there's a patient zero and then there's there are all of these books that have been infected by concepts by by themes um by by humor um you know ways that we can look at that so um let's let's take a quick moment and talk about things that are making us happy in sff today um i'm going to um start with um Cat, because I, because I'm starting with you, Cat. <laughs> uh, so I'm definitely gonna say her name wrong. Uh, but the author I've been reading a lot of lately is Helen Oyeyemi, mm-hmm. something of, uh, like that. I'm not. I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. Uh, she's a British uh, author who writes very, very literary. Um, a lot of them are fairy tale retellings, but not all of them. They're extraordinary. Mr. Fox is uh, the one that I read that started me off on reading all of her books. And it's just so deft and beautiful. It's kind of a a Mr. Fox retelling, kind of a Bluebeard thing. It goes all over the place and follows um, an author and uh, his protagonist as they incarnate themselves voluntarily into a number of different bodies. It's it's just beautiful. I I cried at the end. I I haven't loved a book like that in a long time. And I went on to read White is for Witching, and I'm reading Boy Snow Bird, which is her Snow White book right now. But she's amazing. I am just completely blown away by her, and she makes me very happy that someone like that exists and is quite successful at what she's doing. Woohoo! Okay. Um, Sophia, did you have something that was making you happy? I have many things that are making me happy, but I will pick one. Okay. Um, And I'm also going to say a name wrong for, you know, for consistency. Um, And um, the name is Angelica Gorodischer. Um, Yes. She is um, an Argentinian writer. And um, I read Calpa Imperial, which um, was translated by Ursula Le Guin and is unbelievably amazing. It is a set of linked stories. It, and it was actually, um, it was actually two volumes in Spanish, but it's, it's, it's one in the English translation. And it is about the rise and fall of, um, a variety of empires. Um, it's beautiful. And, uh, I know that there's another book of hers that's been translated, um, called Trafalgar, which is on my list to read next because I was really, I was blown away by both um, the prose, which is really intricate and beautiful, and the way that that prose mirrored um, the intricacies of the history in the book. It's just amazing. Fantastic. Thanks. Seanan, is there something that's making you not want to ignite the, the biosphere today in SFF? So I've been really busy lately and thus not paying attention to things the way that maybe I should. And Stephen King came on Twitter this morning and was like, I'm 10 days out from book launch and it never gets any less nerve wracking. And I went, what the hell do you mean you're 10 days out from book launch? So Stephen King has a new book coming out in 10 days that I didn't know about because I'm, you know, not too bright. Um, And he also has a new book coming out in November, and that's amazing. So the world gets to exist at least until November so that I can read two new books by Stephen King. Excellent. Dear Mr. King, thank you for saving us from Seanan. You're welcome. Also, (laughs) Sailor Moon Crystal is premiering super, super soon, and we got the news last week that all of the original Sailor Moon, all five seasons, have been licensed for a new English distribution. They're going to be both sub and dub, and they are keeping all of the original Japanese names and relationships intact, which means no more accidental cartoon incest. Yay! (laughs) Oopsie. There's another title for the episode. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Bear? 
Go ahead and follow that. Is anybody? I gotta follow that. Yep. Um, or did they fall well, awkwardly? How did this happen? <laughs> okay. Um, Bear, do you mind a brief diger- diversion so that Paul's Digress. not asking about the cartoon incest all day? Digress. Um, in in the in the original Sailor Moon, uh, sailors Uranus and Neptune are lovers, and that is made pretty clear by the Japanese version. But since they were releasing Sailor Moon in America for a slightly younger audience, they were aiming it at 9 to 12-year-olds instead of 11 to 15-year-olds, and America has different attitudes toward those types of relationships, the folks that were releasing Sailor Moon in the U.S. decided that they couldn't get away with cartoon lesbians. Uh, So when they dubbed the show, they dubbed them as cousins. They were touching each other constantly because they were cousins who loved each other. They were giving one another <laughs> longing looks because they were cousins who loved each other. Like, seriously, they, they took a relatively low-key, you-could-miss-it-if-you-didn't-look-too-hard. Like, they never have sex on screen, nothing like that. Uh, they took a relatively low-key, G-rated lesbian relationship and turned it into full-on cartoon incest. <laughs> because every time Haruka and Michiru touched in the American dub, they had to make a comment about how they were cousins and they loved each other. It was, it was amazing. It was like, this is, this is the most horrifyingly stupid think-about-the-children decision anyone I knew had ever seen. And we all watched in awed fascination waiting for the day that somebody would figure out oh my god the cousins are fucking uh so that was that was beautiful that was my experience of the 90s was let's watch the cartoon lesbians (laughs) pretend to be related wow seriously it was horrible i'm actually looking very much forward to the new dub so that caitlin can watch it Um, i'm so excited yeah it's gonna be awesome um so so bear um we had asked you to follow and and now I've got to follow that. Yeah, you've got to follow that. <laughs> well, um, I, since I already mentioned uh, that I'm on a Karen Joy Fowler kick, which is a good thing to have, um, and since it's somewhat related, the thing that I am very squeeful about lately is the um, amazing diversity and range of authors and subject matter in the Nebula and Hugo ballots this year. Woohoo! Um just the the i i really think that for for one of the first times in award history we're we're showing a real snapshot of the people who are writing really good science fiction and fantasy across the genres and i'm very excited about that yay hooray yeah paul oh um right um i've just <laughs> had i've just had a launch week and as sean and just said um you you guys all know these they're they're it, 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 for some reason they're incredibly nerve wracking, and I'm not and I'm never entirely sure why. I think it's um it feels like you're letting a a animal you've nursed back to health out into the wild, and it might get picked on or you know, and and your book just sort of you gently try and <laughs> shove it out there, eaten and, by and an it, owl. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you tune into my nightmares, and, uh, <laughs> and you just you just gently push your book into the forest. Go, go on, go on. You'll be happy. Go on, 
fly be free and you know other books sort of start to approach and maybe it's accepted into the herd and it looks <laughs> once over your over its shoulder at you and you think don't forget me and off it goes and um so I've, I've been going through that experience which has been lovely um and um but also for some reason terrifying and i'm kind of exhausted at the end of the week i've done quite a lot of publicity but most of the exhaustion just comes from that that feeling of oh fight or flight which is very bizarre um, Nick Harkaway was saying on Twitter the other day that he feel he experiences this as well. Um, mind you, yeah, last night I got a lightsaber. Um, oh. My agent appeared at a, a, a bar with a lightsaber, and um, you, you always hesitate. And you could see him from way off. You know, he was intercepted by bar-going folk at the door, and you know, was, took his while, a while to make his way across to us because of a lightsaber, and everybody wanted to have a go. And you kind of hesitate to go into up to a bar in a pub, actually with a lightsaber, because then you're actually in the full scene. And, you know, you expect a guy to tell you that he's wanted in six systems or whatever, and uh, and it'll just end in, in cauterized bloodshed. But anyway, so, so that's been my week. I, I've read Paul's new book, oh. and so I'm done with it now. And that doesn't mean it was bad. It's actually quite lovely, Paul. Please, please do not have post-book launch week <laughs> sadness. I really did enjoy it a great Aww. deal, but I've got a lot of other things to read, so I'm not going to be rereading it for a while. And I've got a really big horned owl that lives in my backyard. And the temptation to cover Paul's book in steak juice and just try to get the owl to take it <laughs> is now so high. I'm going to lay an owl trap. I'm going to cover this book in something smelly and lay an owl trap <laughs> just for owl i Think will be i'm gonna do it for the vine bear i will, <laughs> I will, I will retweet, retweet it but nobody will understand <laughs> actually please don't get eaten by an owl would be another good title for this yes. episode <laughs> yes indeed I, I, I think you're, you're right paul that it is incredibly exhausting and at least for me part of that is the illusion of control you know, we're, we're, we're trying to feel like we have some control over this process. And really it is it's exactly like sending a kid off to college or, or releasing a, an animal into the wild. It's like, please don't come home dead. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yes, but you know, you're right. We, it's because we, we, we have no control for the moment it leaves us. None. And, and we know Kirkus is going to savage us, but we have to do it anyway. <laughs> My poor book, I turned you over to Kirkus. What did I what was I doing? Oh my goodness. Ow. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> and in the world's most awkward transition, um, I'm I'm going to talk about my happy thing, which is a book that was not savaged by Kirkus. Um, I just finished uh Catherine Addison's The Goblin Emperor, which was on my to be mm. my to be read list yeah. and um is is by my dear friend Sarah Monette writing under a new name. Uh, and I absolutely adored it. Um, this is straight up secondary world fantasy. Um, and true to form for Sarah, it is very much a meditation on the nature of trying to be a good person when surrounded by the ability to not be a good person. Um, the main character, Maya, um, who is the fifth son of the emperor, and, and I mean, this is not a spoiler, it's the first 10 pages. Maya is relegated to the country. Uh, his four eldest brothers and his father die in a airship accident, and suddenly he is thrust into power as the emperor. This is how the book opens. Um, and so the book is really a study of Maya learning to be emperor. 
um, in a society that expects uh, a certain level of cruelty, a certain le level of casual malice, um, and all of the politics and the world building is sort of predicated on those assumptions in the world and what you have is this wonderful depth of a character fighting against that structure and doing a damn good job of it actually mm. um it, it's it, it's just oh it's so hard to describe because the, to explain all of the things that happen would not really make sense outside of the context of the book um but it is as as i always expect to be the case with sarah it is beautifully written um and it is um Lovingly detailed in terms of the world building. Um, the, the, I did find the names a little bit confusing at first, but once I figured out the system of prefixes and suffixes and the um, uh, the nomenclature in terms of, of the equivalent of Mr. Miss and Ms., um, all of that sort of stuff, uh, once I figured it out, it was fine. Um, and, and so readers, if you worry about things like names and you find them confusing, just go with it. It's worth it. It's totally, totally worth it. Um, so the Goblin Emperor under the name Catherine Addison, absolutely worth your time. Wonderful book. Um, just made me so darn happy. So, uh, and the next thing on my docket is Captain Marvel volume one, because I've been meaning to read it forever and I love Kelly Sue DeConnick. So there you go. Oh, yes. So, oh, Gail oh. Simone is doing Wonder Woman. Yay! Gail Simone is doing Wonder Woman. <laughs> Best thing ever. Now we just need her to write a movie and sell it. So that we can finally have a Wonder Woman movie, if only. Indeed. In, mm. If only. How about a Batwoman movie? I would take a Batwoman movie in a heartbeat. <laughs> I'll assuming, take both. Yeah. I want them to get together and fight crime. That's fine. They could. They could. They could fight crime. They could go out to dinner. Yeah. They could. They you could know, talk trash about about other Batman. Superheroes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> talk trash about Batman. Man, he's so emo. He just needs to get over himself. You know <laughs> that sort of thing. I think that would be most excellent. So yeah, we need we need we need a buddy cop movie with Batgirl. And Wonder, and Wonder Woman. Woman. Let's make that happen. Rule 34 you know, says the I... fix already out there, but. <laughs> okay, so speaking of conversations, because this is this actually turned into not a bad segue, um, because we're talking about comics that talk to, to, talk to one another. Um, Wonder Woman, Batman, Batgirl. Um, so let's talk about books that talk to one another. Um, this is often referred to as the long conversation. Um, and it's an interesting topic to me because um, I'm one of those people, as we know, Bob, um, who's entered genre only in the past 10 years. So I'm coming into the conversation rather late into it um, compared to folks who have been reading genre for most of their lives. Um, and so there are things and books that will seem fresh to me or or new and shiny to me that may not to others because others are far more steeped in the traditions from whence they come. Um, so I wanted to, to, to talk a little bit about that. Um, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm, I'd like to start with Bear if I may, because I think Bear may have some opinions about this. <laughs> Um, I don't, I don't even know where to begin on the, on the topic. Pick somewhere. We'll work around it. Um, <laughs> I, I have actually stopped looking for shiny and new in my books, uh, because I, I can't remember the last time I found something that struck me as really shiny and new. What I look for is at this point is this is a really good example of X, um, or a really good example of Y, um, so I think I've I've I have moved from and and this doesn't mean that I don't still get sense of wonder out of out of things um, or or that sense of awe of a really big cool idea, but um, that I, I 
have not had the top of my head blown off in a good long time. So, <laughs> so, so Bear, because you've been reading a genre for most of your life, do you think that it's just that much harder to blow the back of your head off? Yeah, I well, I I, I think it's it's because um, okay, uh, take um, the and I I don't feel. Um, I, I would like to say in advance that I really enjoyed this book a whole hell of a lot, but the the Triple Crown winner of 2014, Ancillary Justice, by the awesome Anne Leckie, which is a very, very good book, um, but I am seeing an awful lot of people respond to it as if it were this incredibly revolutionary thing that no one had ever seen before hmm. um, because of some of the games it plays with gender and pronouns, and having been raised by radical feminists in the 1970s and spent an awful lot of my childhood reading, you know, lesbian utopian science fiction. Um, and uh, Joanna, you know, Joanna Russ at age eight does strange things to your brain. Um, or, or Susie McKee Charnas. I, I didn't have that experience of, of having a revelation Mm-hmm. Of, of of having some sort of huge uh epiphantic moment brought on by this book. Um I think it's a very good book. I think it's I think it's quite strong and I think it's obviously kicking in a whole bunch of people's mental teeth, you know, all over the blogosphere and in every um every available award. Uh, <laughs> At, at this point, uh, I think if it, it – I, I made a joke on Twitter recently about uh, Anne, you know, Anne Leckie or um, California Chrome uh, in the Triple Crown this year. And I think it will be a similar experience if, if California Chrome does not win the Belmont, if, uh, if Anne Leckie does not bring home the best novel, Hugo. I think we're all going to be a little sad. Mm. <laughs> maybe not Shonen. Oh, no. Well, maybe not Shonen, but – um, I, I would like to win the best novel, Hugo, someday. I absolutely would. But even more, I would like to see a debut, a female debut hard science fiction novelist by a bring home, woman. by a middle-aged woman, bring home the hat trick. Mm-hmm. Like, on a self-interest level, of course I want a best novel, Hugo. I, who doesn't want a best novel Hugo? Non-novelists want best novel Hugos. But on a women in genre and just we are not a party game, we are not a hat trick, we are serious fucking contenders here, mm-hmm. I would love to see Anne Leckie take that home and just be like, yes, I, I, I got the Nebula, I got the Clark, I got the Hugo, my award shelf went from zero to better than yours <laughs> in one year. Look at me. Because I think that that makes such a huge difference. So... I'm voting for ancillary justice. And wow. Yeah. I, I, I am actually capable of thinking of things other than myself, Disneyland, and my doll collection. It's hard. I don't <laughs> There's like also it. your cats. I think There's of my cats a lot. Um the uh but yeah, actually Sean and that's for for all of you Hugo nominees or other major award nominees out there, that Take it from two frequent Hugo nominees. This is one of the best coping strategies around is pick the book you really think, if you weren't in the race, pick somebody else to root for. Yeah. And that way, if if you win, you feel great. And if you don't win and they win, you feel great. And if you both lose, then you can be really pissed off on their behalf because they were robbed. 
Exactly. And then you don't have to do <laughs> behalf, which everyone takes as being a sore loser. We've thought exactly. a lot about this. <laughs> Probably a bit too much. But, you know, that's what makes us human. So, so Sophia, um, I wanted to, to, to ask you to weigh in a little bit about this very broad topic that we have now really moved far away from. Um, to talk about sort of books that talk to one another, um, because you were, you were talking about influences and, and we were talking about books as a social, di- books and, and concepts from books as social disease. Um, I was wondering if you had, um, if you could think of any examples, for instance, of books that you really wish, wish would become a social disease that might not have done so yet. Huh. Um, wow. I would have to take a little bit more time and think about that. Okay. I think Can I offer I... one suggestion and while you and sure. while you think? Um Nora Jemison's work. Mm. Uh N, N, uh NK Jemison. Um her first trilogy uh, which was absolutely fantastic. Um now again, you know, this is this is me coming from the I have not read everything in genre for the past 20 years, so it was new and fresh to me. Um but, um, and I have The Killing Moon on my nook, which I've been meaning to read forever, um, and I will get to at some point, but, um, I... We should, we should make a pact, because I bought it when it came out, and I haven't read it yet either. Okay, maybe we'll do a, maybe we'll, at some Alice point... Alice threw up on we'll, it. Aw. <laughs> at some point, we'll do a co-read or something. Okay. Um, but, but I, I really think that, um, Nora's work is absolutely fantastic and you know she's she's guest of honoring at wiscon this weekend which is fantastic for her um i would love to see her work infiltrate the conversation a lot more than it has Um, can i ask can i ask what what is it about her work and i've i've read the i haven't read the killing moon i've read the hundred thousand kingdoms um what is it about her work that you would like to see become a social disease like what elements of it do you want to see spread um, I think one of the thing, one of the elements I would love to see spread a lot further is the non, the, the non-automatic defaulting to Western Europe as a fantasy setting. Mm. Um, I think that it's starting to happen more and more. Um, and I think it's wonderful. Um, and I'm, I'm finding myself gravitating more towards books that are getting away from the, Hey, look, we're faux medieval Europe yet again thing. Um, there are mm-hmm. really great examples of books that do that well, and there are lots and lots of books that don't do it as well. Um, but I like the notion that fantastical things can happen in just about any setting. Um, the second book in the first trilogy that Nora did had a protagonist who was blind, um, and I, I also enjoy seeing um, more characters that have disabilities of, of some sort front and center having their own adventures. And again, there are great examples of this. Bear has written some great examples of this. Um, there are lots of people who do, and that's something I would like to see be more pervasive. So I guess in a very general sense, it's the the representation that I'm that I'm seeing in Nora's work of not the quote unquote white male cishet default. Um, mm-hmm. that I'd like to see spread more so that this, this, you know, we, we talk a lot on this podcast about the rainbow age of SF and, and the, the wider view of what the world actually looks like when you look around with, with eyes that when, when you look around and you see a world that has a lot more variety in it than we necessarily notice as part of our cultural defaults. Yes. Um, 
that's that. That is something I would love to see spread like a freaking disease through this literature, along with the the fact that Nora is just very, you know, Nora's a really good writer. She's, again, a very good prose stylist. And that's mm -hmm. something that, you know, there are lots of different ways to be a fantastic prose stylist. And I wish all of them upon every writer that I know and love um, who don't already have it. And many of them do. So that's the other part of it is that that um, just stylistically, she's very enjoyable to read as well. So, well, I, I I completely agree. I completely agree. And I would say, along with you know um, having different types of setting spread as a social disease, I would also like to see different um, different systems, different different systems of magic, different you know a diversity of actually um, cultural forms spreading. Mm -hmm. um, I think of Nalo Hopkinson's work and um, and the way that, you know, she draws on um, cultural and belief systems of the Caribbean in a really fascinating way. Um, and also, and also, you know, makes it very contemporary. So it's not it's not saying that, oh, this is something that used to exist and now it's, you know, just in anthropology books. No, this is a living, these are, these are living systems. Um, so that's something that I would like to see spread. I think I, I guess, okay, so first of all, my, I feel like there are, obviously there are many long conversations. Um, the long conversation that begins with sort of Tolkien is one that I'm really familiar with. I'm less familiar with the with the science fictional long conversations just because I've read a lot more fantasy than I have SF. Um, and so it, it, talking about the fantasy side of things, while I really love, um, I love to see that diversity of settings, I also want more. You know, I don't, I don't want to, I'm not as excited by the idea of, oh, you know, we've set this we, we've set this somewhere else. Let's say, oh, we set something in, I don't know, North Africa or somewhere. But then the story kind of progresses with a very similar, you know, there's a talisman that we have to get and there's a quest and there's a, you know, king who, you know, is, is hidden or, you know, that it's not that there's anything terribly wrong with that, but I just, I want to see um, a different belief system expressed as well as a different setting, mm -hmm. I guess I would say. So um, not just slightly different plot coupons, but actually a different structural plot. Yeah. Yeah. And not something where I, I feel like it's different, almost window dressing. That mm -hmm. sounds bad to say, but you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. um, sort of the same creature wearing a different hat. Sure. <laughs> um, the other thing I'll say about long conversation, I had, a, I just had an interesting experience recently where, um, I have a little book club. Um, I, I teach, I'm a, I'm a literature professor and with a couple of my colleagues, we all wanted to read, um, Margaret Atwood's Mad Adam. Um, and so we all read it and they do not read, um, fantasy and science fiction at all. And I obviously do. And it was really interesting because, they were just flabbergasted by like, you know, doing things with genetics and like modifying the vegetables and that it was an, it was a post-apocalyptic thing. And I was looking at them like, really? Like it just, I was, I was completely like, uh, 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 I, what? I, it was just, it was very bizarre. And I kept going, well, I, I can't be as excited about this as you guys are. And I think, 
you know, that's one side of the long conversation that happens. But the other side of it for me is that I don't want my reading to be a search for shiny things. I really don't. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, along the lines of what Bear was saying about you want to see a a really good example of something. I want to see something done beautifully and well. Um, And for me personally, Matt Adam didn't quite get there. But but at the same time that I go, yeah, that's not that exciting to me because I've seen that in a whole bunch of short stories and everywhere. I also think if there were, if there are other things going on that are amazing, then the fact that I don't find something new and shiny is not going to in any way, you know, cause me to um, be less excited about the book. Okay. Thanks, Sophia. Um, So I'm going to, I'm going to call on Kat next because we haven't heard from her in a little bit. You're on the hot spot, Kat. Um, what is the is there something that you would like to see become spread like a social disease in SFF? Well, I mean, I think a lot of people have covered uh, a lot of ground here, uh, so I'll choose to be pithy. Um, I'm not looking for something new and shiny. I just want things to shine. Uh, mm. I want there. I, I want to see a care for language. I want to see a care for. Um, creating not just systems, systems of magic uh, that that are gameable, that are translatable into um, something that sounds like a, a recipe for coconut cream pie or uh, for, for, for thermonuclear weapons. Um, but uh, for, but I don't, want to, I don't want things that are systematized. I want books that make me feel something. I want books that change the way I look at some tiny thing in our world. Uh, I want books that are not consumed with uh, the quest to be new and shiny or, or seize upon the newest and shiniest thing, but that are concerned with uh, what it means to be human and alive. And, of course, that, that kind of covers a lot of the material we've been talking about with regards to non-Western cultures and, and representation, because to be human and alive is not simply to be white and Western mm-hmm. and male. Um, but what I look for in my reading constantly now is some feeling that is sparked in me, not by, uh, not something that makes me go, gee whiz, that's cool, but something that makes me clutch my heart and tear up, not in a sentimental way, but just, I just want to, I just want to feel something in a genre book. Um, and I think that while realism has trouble, um, translating their obsession with feeling into something that's particularly interesting to read. I think a lot of genre fiction has trouble uh, with the opposite. There's all kinds of interesting things out there, but there's uh, not a lot that is concerned with, um, with feeling and uh, connection. And that, that's what I'm constantly looking for, that and a nice turn of phrase. Mm-hmm. I love it. <laughs> I, I commend unto you Karen Joy Fowler. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I am quite a fan of Karen Joy Fowler. Yeah. So, so Bear, did, you, did we ask you already? I've, um, I've lost I, track. I, I don't think we have. Off, you didn't actually ask me a question. Okay. Um, I actually, um, there, was, there was something that Sophia said that had sparked something that I wanted to, to, to say about it, but now I can't remember what it was. Um, I just repeat everything that I said. Maybe. I'll <laughs> <laughs> well, you're the guest. Um, but the the uh, what what we were saying about um, I I think 
it seems to me, if I may, if I may synthesize a little bit, and then you can all shout me down, is that one of the things we are we are all looking for as genre professionals, as people who think about this as a lot, as people who read a lot, and maybe are a little bit jaded, is that we want some real strong, honest human emotion and um, characterization and catharsis going on in our stories. We want stories that that um, that are that are creating the the um, that you know a really good story stays with you. It has that emotional impact. It's not just about the gross out or the the little bit of um, escapism or, you know, when I want to relax, I read cozy mysteries. I don't even read science fiction and fantasy anymore because they don't require my attention. Mm. Um, this this statement unfair to many cozy mysteries, some of which are quite good, but I, I don't have to analyze them to see what they're doing because it's not my genre. Um, the and and they they often have that the best ones often have that that spark of something human and interesting going on even though you know it's going to have a a happily ever after ending except for the people who get killed along the way though <laughs> 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 oh, the collateral damage um and I was actually thinking about uh, something Sophia said, and I can't remember what it was, made me think of uh, Ben H. Winter's um, The Last Policeman and Countdown City, which are not real innovative in their science fictional premise. The idea is that this guy is a cop in Concord, New Hampshire, and it's the end of the world. There's, there's going to be an extinction-level impact event in about six months oh. and how people react. And this guy's reaction is he's still trying to be a good cop. Even while everyone around him is, you know, he's basically like the last police officer in Concord, New Hampshire, because everybody else has either gone off to the Bahamas to enjoy the last six months of the world <laughs> or um, has, you know, committed suicide or gone off to be with their families or whatever and this guy's thing is he's still trying to do his job and it's just so interesting because the the um the narrative is just about his human response to this science fictional disaster which i think is is profoundly cool and and very well written even if it's not a novel idea haha ha, that mm-hmm. was a terrible pun <laughs> 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 and, and on that Paul Cornell-esque note, I will stop talking. All right. Um, Sean, Sean, and, um, Sean and I'm going to ask you the same question. Uh, and then, Paul, you're up last uh, in between bites of pizza. Um, <laughs> <laughs> line up a terrible pun, Paul. That's right. Um, so, Sean, uh, is there something you'd like to see spreading through our genre a little more than it has? Or a little more quickly Wait. than it has? It's um it's interesting because I write mostly I I'm just by sheer volume I write in urban fantasy which a lot of people view as a super new genre even though it's not even though we have War for the Oaks we have all of Delint like there's this huge tradition of urban fantasy even in just the last 50 years um you have to look for it before then because it was never broken out as its own genre and it feels like to me that the things that catch on and spread are often the most superficial. Um, 
I really enjoyed the Anita Blake Vampire Hunter books when I was first reading them. But the mark that they left on the genre was not complicated monsters and questions of morality. It was the more sex you have and the more often you describe your main character's outfit, the better your book sales will be. Um, and that has become very much a hallmark of urban fantasy as a whole. We don't take lessons from Tanya Huff as much as we should. We don't take them from Emma Bull. We take them from paranormal romance. Um, so it feels like we're hitting cult of new over and over. People keep cycling back to, I don't look for new things in my fiction. I'm, I'm just looking for, a th I don't want a shiny new thing. I just want a thing that shines. But we have this weird cultural obsession right now with saying we want everything to be brand shiny new, never seen before and taking it as an insult when people say that that's not the case, hmm. yet wanting the same thing we've always had. Um, I'm a big X-Men reader. I, I always have been. It's one of my first fandoms, and I love it. And when Joss Whedon did his run on the X-Men a couple of years ago, it was a great run. It was very solid. It was very stable. It did a fantastic job of being an X-Men story. But every Whedon fan I know was very insistent that it was completely new ground that no one had ever, ever, ever covered before. And many of them would take it as a huge insult to Whedon and his work if you were like, no, he's building on what everybody that came before him has done. You know, he's not creating a new thing, and that's part of what makes it beautiful. And I think that's, that's an issue for us. We say we want new, but we support Godzilla more than we support Pacific Rim. You know, we hmm. say we want to see shiny things and hear new voices, but at the end of the day, that new Stephen King novel that I just found out about, that I'm very excited about, is going to outsell everything by everyone we're currently super excited about. Because we don't want new, we want familiar. And the social diseases we get are unfortunately never going to be the social diseases we want, because it's always going to be sex over complexity. It's always going to be sex sold fancy costumes sell. Uh, there's a huge trend in, in urban fantasy right now about describing food because the average urban fantasy reader is assumed to be a woman and thus assumed to be on a diet and would like to hear about a character who can eat without worrying. So I'd like us to clean up our social house before we create any more literary social diseases. I'm depressing today! I thought that was really interesting, actually. I wonder if, I mean, do, do people, is it because we want the familiar that we kind of insist we want new and shiny? Is it like, like what's yeah. the relationship between those it's two quite things? That. It's weird. I don't think it's quite that. We want something familiar that has just the tiniest bit of something new to make us feel like we are ourselves revolutionary and awesome and on the yeah. crest of the next trend. But everything else should be familiar so that we get that cozy was mentioned a little while ago that cozy feeling uh of of knowing where the narrative is going knowing it's the kind of narrative we like but there's just that one little free song of something different uh to make us feel like we're good readers so, so well, it's kind I, of i was gonna i'm sorry go ahead paul i was gonna make a bad joke so oh damn <laughs> well i'd never want to interrupt that well i was, um, I was go ahead Go on. Make make a damn bad joke, Lynn. I was then I'll make mine that Paul It's sort of talk. the equivalent of when we get excited if Neil Gaiman puts on a gray t-shirt instead of a black one. <laughs> well, that would be a sign that he'd been replaced by a pod person. Exactly. And we'd have to go to his house and search but it would be sort of, for the you know, real pod containing the real Neil. Right. But it would be, you know, revolutionary 
because it's it, it, it would be probably exactly the same brand of t-shirt and the same size and whatnot, but it would be gray and therefore revolutionary. So there you go. Well, Shakespeare has one of his characters say, um, what is it? Um, all the old stories in all the new ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. That's kind of, oh, my goodness. I, I feel so guilty when I go to my comfort food because I always feel, you know, um, I would like to be participating in the cutting edge and pushing things forward and i really should be and i try to be but um you know whenever i dive back into you know something predictable and steady even if it's not something i've read before something i know what what the the shape of the playground is going to be um i do feel i'm letting the side down and i i suspect that um maybe Maybe we're all, as, as we're, maybe the human race is actually rather good at stomping on that attitude in themselves and saying, "Don't be ridiculous! I'm meant to be doing this for fun." I I have a feeling that if this were a Tumblr post, this would be the time for the GIF of Black Widow saying, "I don't see how that's a party." <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I I think it is I think it is a thing that that all of us try to to sort of manage in some ways. You know, we are are the explosion of things to consume in our copious or not so copious spare time is massive, and yeah. you know everybody makes choices. Uh, and there's, you know, if you, if you look at my, if you look at my Goodreads account, you know, you can very easily see that there are vast quantities of things that make me deeply comfortable and vast quantities of things that make me not so comfortable or, or stretch me as a reader in some way. Um, and if you look at the, if you look at my Goodreads account in terms of timing and when things are read, um, I'm one of those people that reads by feel. So I... I don't pick up things that are particularly challenging or really outside of my wheelhouse until I'm feeling really brave. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I'm when I'm when I'm having a vulnerable day, I'm going to read something that does what it says on the tin. And you know, I may pick a different tin each time, but it will do what it says on the tin. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's just a matter of remembering that as a reader, it's okay to have multiple tins, maybe. And occasionally what? pick up a new one now and then, because eventually I, it becomes a subset of, of the tins that you go back to. It's also really important to remember that we go for familiarity and we go for comfort because we genuinely need it. Mm-hmm. Um, for the first time in my life, I have more books than I can read. This is actually a source of great stress to me and causes me immense emotional dismay. Um, but it means that for a little while I was trying desperately not to reread at all. Because I thought I had an obligation to get through all of these books that are, are clogging up my house. Um, and I actually gave myself a nervous breakdown. Like, I, I was crying and couldn't figure out why. And it, it took my girlfriend going, honey, you haven't read it in a year and a half. When I've read this book annually every year since I was nine, I was so committed to the idea that I had to be new if I was going to be a good participant in my culture that I was hurting myself. Yeah. Yeah. That's what what I was I was about to say basically the same thing in in less specific or or more mm-hmm. metaphorical terms which is that you cannot subsist on molecular gastronomy. Mm-hmm. Every so often as Paul will tell us you have to order a pizza. Um on the on the other hand if you if all you ever eat is that, you know, <laughs> delivery pizza, you're going to have a very 
intellectually speaking, you're going to have a very sad and limited life and clogged arteries, clogged intellectual arteries. (laughs) (laughs) I think we should probably not read too much and go too much further into the food analogy. (laughs) Probably not. I I was really enjoying my extended metaphor here. I'm not necessarily delivery dominoes with a stuffed crust. (laughs) Neither am I, but we all have our comfort food, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and comfort's not a bad thing. It isn't a bad thing. Yeah, you're totally mountain Mike's cat. (laughs) I mean, my my comfort pizza I make myself, but that's besides the point. Well, I think actually, Bear, I think that that's probably true of everyone here. We all make our own comfort food as far as literature goes. (laughs) I think all of us are trying to make the thing that, that we want in the literature we read. That's why we write books, because we want to make something that gives us that same full feeling but that we've had control over all the little parts and we've grown it in our garden with hydroponic technology and uh locally sourced uh (laughs) fertilizer and all of the rest of it Um, sometimes yes and some most i mean most of the stuff that i write is is stuff that i find uncomfortable in some way i i but i tend to write because i'm pissed off about something Mm. um usually something somebody else has written and and I, I think my my driving motivation as a as a writer is that's wrong. I'm going to fix it. <laughs> the long shouting match. <laughs> the long shouting. Yes, match. the long shouting match. I certainly have that instinct as well, Bear. <laughs> really? I don't know. You never know it. <laughs> All right. At this point, um, we are just about at time. In fact, we're a little bit over. So um, we're going to turn and uh, put Sophia back on the hot seat. Because uh, it is time for our questions. Uh, All right. Because Sophia has not yet been subjected to them. Uh, so we're going to go through and ask Sophia our questions, and then we're going to play ourselves out, and that will be an end of it. Thank you, everybody, for this lovely conversation, which I hope our re- our listeners will enjoy. Um, it's really fascinating, because we meander in really interesting ways. Yay, us. <laughs> so, okay. So, Sophia, are you ready? I think so. All right. So the first question comes from Paul, and it is, what do you most fear? Um. I am terrified of heights. I don't know if it's what I most fear, but I I am very, very disturbed by heights. And even worse is seeing one of my children when I think that they're up too high. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Shannon's question, uh, her first question is, can I have a cookie? Yes, absolutely, Shannon. You may have a cookie. And in fact, when I said that I was going to, um, I said on Twitter that I was going to be on the Squeecast, and, and Shannon sort of implied that she was going to devour my soul. And my soul actually is a cookie. So that looks <gasps> Yay! There you go. Just, you know, you can give me your address later or whatever. Okay. Thank you. Shannon, <laughs> can you put off devouring Sophia's soul until she's written a whole bunch more things? Yeah, I Please. want to second that request. No, it would be a, it would really be a lot easier for me if she would just devour it. You know, <laughs> Are you in the middle of a book? I <laughs> I hope I'm toward the end, but I might be in the middle. I might. Be, I don't know. Just will, just kill me now is a recognized stage of novel writing. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> I I will hold off devouring her soul if you will send me cookies. Well, yeah. Okay, then yeah, I'll hold off. Sorry, Sophia. Damn. <laughs> Guess you'll have to finish the book. <laughs> okay, the next question is also from Shaman, which is, what's the first book you remember reading on your own initiative? The first book I remember reading by myself was Bread and Jam for Francis. Aww. Aww. 
And it was so great because Frances was a girl animal. Do you know that there were not girl animals? Like, I was born in 1971, and the books that I was reading when I was a kid, I just don't remember the animals, the main character animals being girls, except Jemima Puddle Duck, who was obviously a grown-up because she was an idiot. But, <laughs> but Frances was a boss. I loved Frances. Excellent. Okay, the next question uh, comes from Paul, and true to form, because he's here, I'm going to make him sing it. Yeah. Ooh. What have you done today to make me feel proud? Wait, what have I done today to make you feel proud? Yeah, I know, it's not meant to be actually me, but they always use it as if it is actually me. It's a sort of generalized me, not not Paul. It's, what have you done today to make an observer feel proud? No, it's Paul. <laughs> um, okay. I what what and it has to be today. Yep. Um Okay. Okay. What I just say, which I, I don't know, it made me feel general proud, day. Was um well first I messed up and my kid went to a slumber party and it was a birthday and we didn't realize and so there was no present and it was sad. And then this morning when I went to pick him up, um we managed to, it's actually me and Keith, my husband together, um, we managed to just get things from our house to be presents for this kid. And I wrapped them in paper that I hope they didn't notice was Christmas wrapping. <laughs> and I delivered it the morning after the party had actually happened. And he was really happy. So I felt like it was kind of a parent, like it was a parent fail, but then it became the same. That's Woo! awesome. Excellent. Okay, the next question comes from Bear, and it's, what do you want on your tombstone? I literally died. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want, because it will be true. Okay. That is, that is probably one of the top three answers we've ever gotten yep. to that question. <laughs> yep. Okay, uh, the next question also comes from Bear. Uh, it is, what is your favorite joke? It need not be PG-13, and please feel free to tell it for posterity. Okay, my favorite joke um, is a knock-knock joke. So I need Yay. one, and I can't be drowned out, so I need just one person to volunteer to do the knock-knock joke with me. Okay, Shannon, you are the knock-knock designee. <laughs> okay, ready? Knock-knock. Oh, wait, no. no, that's you start. You start. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I've been knock-knock joking my way through October the last week. <laughs> are you ready? Okay. I'm ready. Knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow. Interrupting cow who? My favorite. It is good. It is good. It is, it is one of my favorite of the interrupting classification of knock, knock jokes. I did not know there was an entire classification. Oh, is yeah. this like is this like child ballads? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I I off I have on I have on past occasions done the Dalek version of the interrupting joke. Oh, nice. Yes, yes. All right, let's I think hear it. it. Is the starfish. What the interrupting yeah. Dalek? Yeah, it's not really that exciting. But if you're game, <laughs> I will do it. I thought I did it uh, for you guys, but okay. Bear, are you ready? Sure. Knock knock. Who's there? Dalek. Dalek. Inter inter oh, sorry, interrupting Dalek. <laughs> are we all bad at knock-knock jokes today? We are like terrible at knock-knock jokes today. <laughs> uh, uh, are again. we starting over? Yes, we're starting over. Knock-knock. Okay. Who's there? Interrupting Dalek. Interrupting Exterminate. Dalek. Exterminate. <laughs> there you go. 
I personally prefer the starfish variation where when they start to say interrupting starfish who, you just put your entire hand over their face. Yes. <laughs> there's, a, there's a fucking with your drunk friends version of that one, Kat. <laughs> Are you, they all a fucking where you with start your drunk doing, Well, yes, you start doing hand gestures in front of their face where they're like, Are you feeling boxed in, drawn out, <laughs> things coming at you from all directions, fucked by a starfish? <laughs> You get fucked by a starfish. So the one I like is is actually, um, (laughs) it's considered part of the classificational group for some reason, is, I just learned the best knock-knock joke. Bear, bear, I just learned the best knock-knock joke. You want to hear it? Yes. Okay, you start. (laughs) (laughs) I think we just did that one at the very beginning of Most people will say knock-knock. Okay, now I got to tell my favorite knock-knock joke, which I have for Steve. (laughs) Knock-knock. Somebody. Who's there? Two. I'm s- I, I did, in fact, get disconnected tonight. I'm <laughs> going to mute myself in case you can still hear me. Okay. Knock, knock. Who's there? Two. To who? To whom? Oh. <laughs> oh. You will never get that wrong again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We, we still have three questions left. And a breakfast drink. <laughs> All right, we still have three questions left that we need to get through. So, uh, Sophia, yes, this question comes from Kat. It is, what is your quest? What is my quest? My quest is to finish this novel and have it be good. So say we all. Yay! Yay. That is my Next quest. Time. Okay, uh, two left. Uh, my question is, what is your favorite word? My favorite word, I have several favorite words, and for some reason I like the essent ending. So I like crescent, I like iridescent, and I like opalescent. Shiny. Mm-hmm. And the last question comes from Michael, which is, what's the one place you'd like to visit that you haven't traveled to yet? Japan. Cool. I would love to go to Japan, and my kids want to go to Japan. So maybe someday when I'm very wealthy, we will do that. Excellent. Alrighty, so this is the part where I play us out. Um, thanks everyone for joining us. Thanks to our regular contributors, Bear, Kat, Shannon, and Paul, and our very special guest, Sophia Samatar. Special thanks to our webmaster, Dimitri Zagadulin, our technical producer, David McConechase, Jeff Bonhoff at Mystic Fig Studios for the instrumentals of music by Shannon McGuire, Katie Shuttleworth, who made our rock and logo, and Michael Thomas for general administrative support. We hope that you will join us next time. Same squee time, same squee channel. Thanks. Bye-bye.